0: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's
1: what she said.
2: Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hey, everybody. This is a special That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a throwback to an old podcast that I really loved, that happened before I joined Labatard and Friends that I want you all to hear. But because of that, I had to recruit a special friend to share a dilemma today. And so I want to thank him for his generosity, the extra work and time he put into helping me out in a pinch. Can't thank him enough for being willing to step in when I needed him. It's my good friend, Stugat. So uh, let's hear his dilemma.
0: Hey, it's Stugat. So I got a lot of dilemmas going on, not just today, just in general. Dilemmas, dilemmas, dilemmas every day. Uh, the chief dilemma I have going on today is how I am the one at ESPN, and I am the one at Levitard and Friends Podcast Network that gets accused of being lazy, yet Sarah Spain is sitting here about to repurpose a podcast. They call me lazy, and she's going to run back an interview she did years ago.
2: You know what? That is unfair. It's almost like people are basing their opinion of you and your work ethic on years and years of you doing the bare minimum at all times. It's like they've seen a pattern throughout your entire career or something and then feel like because you've literally been like that every day of your life that you must still be like that. You know, it's like the boy who cried wolf, but instead he cried for someone else to do his job all the time. It's really despicable that people say that about you. And I, for one, would never accuse you of anything other than working 110% at all times, especially when I get caught post-Vegas Gronk retirement party without a guest for my podcast and need to repurpose an old one and then I don't have a dilemma, I need to ask you to do my job for me. So I, especially in this position right now, would never, ever accuse you of dragging uh, things down at the old Levitard and Friends Network. I mean, you are the top choice every week, best content, hardest worker. Everything I ever hear from our shared producer, Dan Stanzik, is that you are raring to go hours early in advance, overprepped, I think he would say. Uh, Just too much content, too many ideas, uh, too willing to work. So, uh, Stugatz, I I guess your dilemma is one that can only be fixed by spreading the word to everyone – that you are you are just the most hardworking, honest, totally nothing like the guy that you have proved yourself to be every day of your life up until now. There. I fixed it. The commish has spoken.
0: It is weird how his rap is like he is the laziest ever and he cares so much. And he is always <laughs> trying to tinker with stuff at the end. He's like, no, that wasn't good enough. Let's do it again. And I'm like, I think we're good. He's like, no, no, no. no. Is we're he really? Good. Yeah. He's, he's kind of a diva. It's weird and he has I feel a million like we ideas. we keep this part
2: in? Can we keep this in the podcast? Uh, I kind of feel like it, I like knowing that about Stu.
0: It is true. He he is a real go-getter. We just talked for, like, 25 minutes and threw, like, 50 ideas out there. That's his thing, though, is, like, he loves a good idea. The execution and doing the work to get to that idea. There you
2: go. Now we got to to something that sounds more right. (laughs)
0: Like, he was saying things, and I was like, that's a good idea if we had, like, a month to prep for it. But we have a day, (laughs) so I know that's not going to happen. So let's think about our realistic options, and there are plenty of those. Um, But yeah, he does care a lot and tries oh, yeah. way harder I, I think than everyone looks.
2: knows he cares. He cares about the idea, and then he gets all the work to be done for him by a variety of people online and, and in the shipping container.
0: That's what she said.
2: So this podcast is back from November of last year, not too long ago, but I loved this conversation. I know a lot of you didn't really catch on to that's what she said until more recently, so I thought it'd be a good time to bring it back. Also because, as I mentioned, I was in Vegas and on vacation, and then all my podcast guests didn't get back to me in time for this week. So... The good news is you guys get a great pod that you probably didn't hear before with Brian Koppelman, who is the co-creator of the Showtime hit Billions. And I know everybody is in Billions craze right now um, as this season gets better and better. So I thought it was a good time to bring it back. And I loved my conversation with him. Uh, he realized at about 30 years old he was being what he calls a shadow artist and took the leap into TV and film from the very successful music career that he had kind of grown up in. Um, he also talked a lot about, you know, the Godfather and how it plays into Billions. Easter eggs that you can find within the show. The creative process, moments of doubt, especially after his very first film, Rounders, was sort of critically panned before it became a cult hit. And um, the process of really figuring out if you're being true to yourself in what you're doing and what you're creating. I love talking to him, and he's a great follow on Twitter, too. He's really into sports. Um, so check out my interview with Brian Koppelman. Well, that's what she said. Super excited to welcome in this week's guest, Brian Koppelman, writer, producer, film and TV show creator, podcaster. And according to the research I did for this podcast at one time, also in A&R, doing amazing things with awesome people that I didn't even know that part of your life. So I'm so excited to talk about Eddie Murphy and Tracy Chapman and all that stuff, too. Um co-writer of films, including Ocean's 13 and Rounders, director of the Emmy Award-winning ESPN 30 for 30 doc, This Is What They Want, and the co-creator, showrunner, executive producer of Billions, which I believe is uh, maybe the biggest thing yet. Bigger, I don't know. What would you say it's the biggest thing yet for you, Brian?
1: Yeah. In, culture, in terms of cultural impact, in a way, um, and the way that the people who love our show love right. our show and feel like they're a part of it, it's definitely bigger than anything else. You know, but rounders because it was our first movie and because of the life it's had for 20 years now, I feel very connected to the audience uh, of that film. And, and so in, in most ways, billions is, uh, it's a wonderful thing to to do and to have at at this sort of stage in our career. When I say ours, because David Levine and I are partners at this and have been the whole time. And the only other thing I'll say is I don't really think in those terms, which is why it's not that easy to answer it. What I'm I'm really focused on is making the stuff, and that's not like an athlete who says, "Well, I just go out there and try to only think about hitting the ball." Right. It's that you become when you do what we do. You immerse yourself so heavily in telling these stories. You connect so deeply with your actors, and you kind of live in this um, in the ether a little bit where reality meets this thing that that you're creating. And so it's incredibly gratifying when an audience receives it. I love when the show's airing and we've made the season and we're not currently shooting and I can interact with folks online about it. That's rewarding. But when I'm in it, as I am now, because we're shooting and writing season four, I kind of tune out the aspect, the career aspect. I'm really only thinking... Um, as a writer and storyteller, does that make sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we're going to get into your interacting with folks about the show because I think that's fascinating too and the way you react to it. Um, yeah, so let's go way back. Uh, you're growing up in New York. I'm, I'm kind of curious because I know your sister hosts a serious show called Just Jenny. So obviously, yeah. creative folks coming out of this family. What kind of family dynamic were you in and what kind of kid were you?
1: Oh, well. <laughs> What kind of kid, as you know, is something you can answer so many different ways, right. <laughs> um, because how do you choose to define us now? I mean, I, I tend to separate. I'll say this. One thing that we had in our house, and it's just we were incredibly blessed by this, is two parents who really were focused on us, um, and my sisters and I have two sisters. We um, all have always gotten along very well. I don't think you would have necessarily known I would have spent my life doing this work if you knew me as a kid. It was clear uh, I was not a good student. I was one of those people who, you know, I would take the tests and they would all say, "Um, you're too smart to be doing this poorly at school, which is wonderful to hear when you're eight (laughs) years old. And um, but uh, I could only really focus on the stuff that interested me. And so I ended up when I was in high school uh, producing physical acts, managing them. And I was super, one thing that has always sort of defined my approach is I follow my curiosity and my obsessions. And I was that way as a kid too. So if I found a book that I loved, I would sit there and read that book in the boring history class instead of listening to the boring history teacher prattle on. And that didn't endear me to the teacher, but By the end of that day, I knew a lot more than many other people because I was trying to expand my world beyond the limits of stuff that I knew at the time wasn't compelling to me. I had a pretty clear notion, even as a kid, that my path was going to be whatever um, I found and it probably wasn't going to be traditional. I was probably um, not going to be someone who uh, was great in a job where I had to respect a kind of authority that was just a given, an, an unearned um, authority. The way uh, sometimes teachers in middle school are—you know—they've been there for a long time. They no longer care about inspiring you. Right. That stuff didn't matter. I was super into sports. Also, I played competitive basketball and competitive tennis, and nice. um, you know, I was varsity athlete in both of those sports. I wasn't great at either one, but I was good enough to play on competitive teams. And so that was also a good outlet for me um, as a kid.
2: Yeah, and it's an interesting through line. There's been a fair amount of very successful people that have come on my pod who have that kind of – they they were great at getting into whatever they were obsessed about, and they knew well before maybe everybody else did that they should just do that, and it wasn't worth going to school to pretend to do something else instead of just starting. And so you said you started managing bands while you were in high school, right, and booking bands – for a local nightclub, was you were you still in high school when you met Eddie Murphy?
1: I was, but but I would say, and I'm I'm happy to talk about this, but I've talked about it a lot, and I'm you know as a 52 year old, it's it's to go back to when I was 16. Right. But I, I'll do it quickly. And my father, look, there are a couple other advantages I had. One is that, and I like to talk about this now a lot because I think it's un, unstated too often. I mean, you're a woman who's been very successful at, at what you do, and I feel that a generation before you was really almost all male. Mm-hmm. But growing up when I grew up, if you were born, as I was, like a white male to parents who had enough money to send you to college without debt, that's kind of like hitting the lottery in the way the world would treat you. Absolutely. So I had certain advantages stacked in my favor, whereas most people, if they you know screw off at school, there are probably going to be these consequences or they're going to get in a kind of trouble they can't recover from. Like I could get a bunch of detentions. And then because of the way that I was um, raised, because I had a certain sense of self, because my parents were people who read books and I had books around my house, I could kind of manage my way through that stuff because things were structured to help me do that in a way. And so that's all to say that I did accomplish some things as a young person that seem sort of remarkable, and at the time, as a kid, I was certainly really proud of myself. But I had these advantages. My dad was also in the record business. So I was aware there was something called a record business. Um right. I, I knew there was um outlet to make albums. I grew up going to recording studios. So yeah, the 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 great story when I was real young was that Eddie Murphy performed at a local rock club the very first year he was on SNL as a featured player. I was managing this, this kid who was a folk singer who opened for him at the local club, and mm. my poor folk singer got booed off the stage because maybe I wasn't a very good manager booking that <laughs> gig for him. It really wasn't the perfect audience match. You know, he's singing Cat Stevens songs, and they want to hear <laughs> Eddie Murphy do CILL, my landlord. But right. when Eddie took the stage, it was clear to me that I was looking at a superstar, and I snuck backstage after the show and said, like, hey, man, you should be making albums. And then I woke my dad up at two in the morning and I was like, I saw this comedian. It was more like a rock star. And then the next day I got them together. I took Eddie's manager's card. And yes, it was an industrious thing for a young kid to to do, but I was well positioned to do it. Um, The the next thing, which I know is in line with this that you you mentioned is when I was in college, and and this, I I will say I I was less about the circumstance of the way I was brought up. Um, When I was at college in the um, late 80s, mid to late 80s, there was this movement to get the endowments of colleges to divest from South African corporations or corporations doing business in South Africa, because this is when apartheid was still going on. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the campus leaders of that movement, um, which was an anti-apartheid pro divestment movement. And in organizing some events, I was coordinating an all campus boycott of classes. And a friend of mine said, there's this folk singer. You should get to play at, at it. And I went and to a little cafe where Tracy Chapman was performing and she played talking about a revolution and a bunch of songs on the first album. And I got Tracy to play that rally, but then I spent the next two and a half years obsessively following her around and working with her and eventually producing her demos and executive producing the album that went on to sell like 13 million copies. And I did that by my, so that was from my sophomore to my senior year in college. And what that did was it, led me into that business. Um, I guess I'd always thought I would do it. I, I love music, um, and I clearly you know, um, now take advantage of that in doing what I do on Billions because Dave and I pick all the music, and it's really an important part of our show. But when I got into the music business, as it happens to so many people, the thing you pick at 21 might not be the thing that makes you happy at 28 or 29.
2: Right. And, I and that's why I brought it realize... up actually because I'm fascinated with having so much success at such a young age at something and then at 30 having a kid and realizing even though that stuff it's not that it came easy to you but as you said you had some you had a leg up um and so instead of just continuing to ride this thing that you've clearly had success at to completely change course.
1: Yeah, it speaks to that there's people like Emerson talk about this, you know, that you, you have a quiet voice inside you that's probably If you can find a way to listen to it, it will lead you in the right direction. And for me, what I kept knowing was that secretly I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be a storyteller, and that I was what Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way, calls a shadow artist, being around these artists, trying to help them with their songs, trying to help them make their records. More than that, the record, the business itself, being an executive, didn't suit me. I didn't feel at all alive as a a person um, in the way that I I wanted to. I wanted to be fully engaged because, as I said before that, my whole life was about following my curiosity and my passion. And when we had our first child, I really realized I wanted to be the kind of person who would come home and and tell my kids that they could be whatever they dreamed of. But I wasn't doing it. And I was a blocked writer. I couldn't write. I was a perfectionist, and I couldn't write. And it was painful. I'd never been a smoker in my life. And at 29, I started smoking cigarettes. And I I was sitting in my office one day, smoking a cigarette, giant stack of demo tapes on my desk, probably eating a cheeseburger. And I realized this isn't who I am because I I had this conscious thought that if you're a blocked person, if something gets blocked in you, it's a kind of death. And like any other death, there's toxicity associated with it. And that that toxicity would leak. It would spread and it would spread to the people I love the most because those are the people I'd be with the most. And I would become a bitter father and husband. And so I committed that night. I went to my best friend I grew up with, David Levine, and I was like, who had been trying to be a screenwriter. And I said, we should do this together. I I really want to write a script. And Dave said, let's do it together. And shortly thereafter, I walked into a poker club. I was a committed card player, but I hadn't found those New York poker clubs. And then um, a guy took me down into this club called the Mayfair Club. And when I left, I, I woke Dave. I called him in the middle of the night and I said, uh, I know what the movie is. It's it's about these poker players. And then the two of us committed and wrote rounders. And I immediately felt that Sarah, like the, the moment we started writing the movie and we researched and we did a lot of, um, got, collected a lot of background material and we took a lot of notes. But the moment we started writing two hours a day, every morning after Dave finished bartending and before I went to work, in those two hours, I felt like a different person. I felt alive. I felt like who I was supposed to be. And the greatest effect of that, right, it's lucky and incredible that it led to success. But the two hours alone were the success. I was immediately better at my job because I wasn't angry to be there. I yeah. was not annoyed to be in meetings because I'd spent two hours pursuing this thing that made me feel like the best professional version of myself. And, and it made me better able to be focused and calm at home. And so that's how I was able to shift gears. I'll say one thing that I think is crucial is I didn't quit my job. I didn't put that pressure on myself of, hey, I have nothing, so I better be able to write. I was just like, I want to do this thing, so I'm going to find a way. I'm going to say no to everything that's not work, family, or this pursuit. You know, obviously, if it's a friend's birthday and you love them, you go. But I sort of made my my life very simple so that I could support my family, stay engaged in in what my um, profession was so that – I could do the thing that I wanted to chase on my own schedule.
2: We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Tissot is the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tissot's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. The Tissot Chrono XL is a great watch for those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable price while the Tissot PR100 family of watches brings together sporty and feminine details for a collection that's bold, romantic, and ideal for the modern woman. Shop Tissot at us.tissoshop.com and at select watch and jewelry stores nationwide.
0: That's what she said.
2: What's fascinating to me is that a lot of the reasons that people become shadow artists is a lack of confidence or belief that they have enough talent to be the artists themselves. So yes. And, you know, I worked in PR in Hollywood, and I was a producer behind the scenes, and those things didn't make me feel alive the way being the producer, the creator of the content does, being the writer and the performer. So I totally get what you're coming from. But how do you make the leap from being a shadow artist, maybe because you fear that you don't have it, to saying, I have it enough to write a screenplay, which I'm assuming you didn't go to school for or didn't have any actual teaching in?
1: A few answers to that. One, the morning pages, which is what Julia Cameron talks about in that book, The Artist's Way, were the thing I started doing. When I went to Dave and I said, you know, I want to be a screenwriter, he was like, let's do it together. He gave me that book. I had given him Awaken the Giant by Tony Robbins, which I had read and really helped me to figure out what I wanted to do. I didn't know for sure that I had the talent. Nobody knows, right? Before you're a successful artist, if you're an artist, there's a very thin line between being an artist and being delusional. You don't really know. But in doing the morning pages, I freed myself from that perfectionism, from wanting to judge myself. That's and the that's part. the problem, yeah. right? Is that you start to judge yourself. You start to tell yourself, hey, why do you think you have the audacity to do this? Like, what makes you think you're special enough to do this? But in st- I taught myself that instead of asking that question, I should just do the work. That if I just did the work, if I could silence, if I could silence, a critical voice for two hours. I could be really critical of myself for the other 22 hours. I could hate myself. I could tell myself I was a fraud and a phony and imposter for 22 out of 24 hours. But if I could make two hours of the day there to chase the dream, then I would protect that time. And so I would do the morning pages. I would take long walks. I would just try my best to put myself in a state of mind. I would say this. I always knew I could write, you know, it's like somebody's fast, my problem is right. I couldn't finish anything. It right. was clear to me I could always write two paragraphs that if you read them, you would think a professional writer wrote them. I was born able to do that. I, and by the way, born able to do that or born loving reading and memorizing right. movies and loving music and comedy, right? I threw myself into that stuff. But I had a great facility with language, and I loved language. I always had a huge vocabulary and not in a show-offy way. I just loved it. I would learn a new word and I would be fascinated by it. So I had this huge enthusiasm for it. You know what I mean? Um, and so I, I felt like it was possible. But almost every day I thought to myself at some point in the day, you're a fraud. You're not really an artist. You're someone who can only shepherd artists. But then I would wake up two morning pages and find my way to my desk. Mm. And as long as I got to the desk, At 8 in the morning in the storage room that my wife cleared out below our building, one slop sink, and if I could get there, Dave would meet me there and we could do the thing. And, you know, then we were lucky enough that that work paid off. It could easily have not paid off. But as I said, I would have just written the next one then. Then I was in. You know what I mean? Then I was doing Mm -hmm. it. Then I found a flow state.
2: Well, what's fascinating is this like fine line between awareness of what's great, which is good. You need that. But if you're too aware of it and you need to be that great to do it at all and then you don't even do it because you're so afraid you're not great, then you never put anything out there. And people who are far worse than you make stuff and have it out in the world and you sit there and look, I'm better than that. But you never do it because you want to be the greatest. It's really hard. It's that self-awareness that sometimes actually serves people to not be too
1: um... – Your insight into this is too great for someone who <laughs> – you must have gone through this. You must feel. Yeah, I mean
2: I moved to L.A. to be an actress and a comedian and I – found a different path that is also very fulfilling. But, I, you know, I I, I gave up in part because I just, I, I was like, oh, I'm not the best, so I, I can't do this unless I'm the best. So it's wait, hard. did you
1: stop doing stand-up completely?
2: I never did stand-up. I did Second City, the whole conservatory, improv. My dream is to be on Saturday Night Live. And so as much as I love what I'm doing, there's a part of me that's always – you know, what if I had just stuck a little bit longer? Or I'd done this instead, or I'd believed in myself. Then it's not a regret because, it, you know, it, this is this is clearly something that I have an aptitude for and that I love. It's just it's just interesting when I talk to other people about. I think maybe I have a little bit too much of that. I can see greatness, and if I don't have it, then I don't do it at all, and that's too bad. Well, There's that's like
1: of- the Salieri syndrome, right? Where right. <laughs> you know. When- where you're worried that you're Salieri, not Mozart. And right. listen, the thing you have to realize is none of us are Mozart. So right. if none of us are Mozart, we're all mostly Salieri. And maybe, you know, every 25 years, Prince comes along. But basically, <laughs> right. basically, we're all some version of just trying our best to capture moments of that magic. You know, well, like I could stand up. It's easier at, at when you're 40. older, I
2: think. You did stand I, up at 40? I,
1: at 40, I did stand up for a year and a half in New York, because like you, I always wanted to see if I could do it. And I just forced myself. I did a year and a half of it um, 12 years ago, and it was an incredible thing to do. Again, that's from that thing of having to take these risks, of of knowing if it's a fear um, and something that I'm scared uh, will end in a certain kind of humiliating failure, (laughs) but that it's coming from a good place, this place of challenging myself, I have to do it. And so, yeah, yeah, I just started going to open mics, and then I passed at a club, and then another one, and then I started getting up like four or five nights a week. And it was incredibly helpful to do because I was writing a script, and I was having a really hard time finishing it. There was something about it that wasn't quite cracking open. And as I started thinking about it, my 40th birthday was approaching. I was making lists of things that I guess was journaling, and I just sort of started writing about having never done stand up and having spent so much time with comedians and having so many comics as friends. And it really mirrored the thing when I was young and I had a lot of writer friends before I was writing. And I just said like, no, this is the year, man, you got to do it. And if it's humiliating, it's humiliating, but just do it. And we had just written Ocean's 13, which I knew was coming out. So we were, you know, we'd written a funny movie and I, I just said, I- I'm doing it. And started doing it. And uh, the first couple of times you bomb, it's, horrifying and then after that it's kind of funny and you learn <laughs> from it. And then, you know, you build five minutes that kind of work and you make these friendships with other comedians. And I got through a year and a half of it and I was able to finish that script. And then Dave and I directed that movie with Michael Douglas, this movie Solitary Man, that a lot of people think is our best work. And yeah. so that experience led to something great. But again, the experience alone was worth it, which is my way of saying to you, <laughs> there's no reason just because you're successful you shouldn't also do the thing that you think might be even more fulfilling
2: yeah well we'll see this this podcast is about you brian you you just we're we're uh this is becoming a therapy session for my for my uh hopes and dreams but you just made me think of something i was listening to your podcast um the moment with uh and your interview with maggie haberman and yes. you were trying to You were trying your damnedest to get her to agree that every once in a while if she did yoga or meditated or just sat for five minutes without working, it might help her work. You were very fascinated by the process of being on a never-ending hamster wheel. Do you think that the comedy for you in part just moved your thinking to a different part of your brain and it opened stuff up and that's how you found the door you were looking for?
1: Yes, I do because – in the same way that what was it? Rosie Greer used to practice ballet to become better at playing football. Right. And like, I do think that exercising different parts of your creativity are helpful and getting out of your area of expertise is helpful. I sometimes talk about um, John Mellencamp's drummer is kind of Kenny Aronoff in the heyday of when, when Mellencamp was a superstar and the first big hit was this song hurt so good that Mellencamp had and Kenny is this great technical drummer and John wanted something else on the song. And he said to Kenny, play lefty instead of righty on this song. Kenny's like, how am I going to hit the high at? And Cougar was like, I want it to feel rougher than that. I want it, I want you to play from a place of discomfort, not fall into just your ordinary, typical groove. And the drum beat is what powers that song. If you go listen to it right now, Heard So Good by John Cougar. And that's because this guy was playing in a way that he hadn't grooved. And so anytime you can find a different way to uh, access a, a side of yourself, a creativity, you have a chance to get someplace pretty special. I do think that.
2: Back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then invite them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. So let's talk about... Billions, because it's a different process than writing a movie. I've never done either, but I'm certain of that. Is it harder to start writing a hit or keep writing a hit once you have the expectation of greatness?
1: I don't see them as that different. Like, from the outside, they're different. But David and I are just telling this story in a longer... that The story itself presented to us in a much more novelistic way. So we, we understood that the worlds that the show took place in we're big enough and expansive enough that we could tell the story for a long time. And then we feel an incredible allegiance to our audience, but we don't really feel a pressure of like keeping up a, a hit show. Showtime incredibly supportive partners and they really like the show. And, and by now going into the fourth season, what we're really trying to do is give our actors great stuff to play and find a way to t- tell sort of like entertaining stories that feel very true to these characters and continue to deepen and, and darken who they are, allow the the characters they are to come more fully into bloom. And, you know, uh, writing like a long running show, what's incredible is that all the stuff you're curious about, all the stuff that obsesses you can find its way into the show. Mm. So if it's a cultural reference, if it's a meme, if it's a book you've read or a movie you've seen, something you've connected to, you have this entire playing field uh, in which to deploy it. And that's the biggest difference and the biggest luxury of doing this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when when, you, um, when you're writing a show like this, too, because people are so into it, and if you leave an Easter egg, they want you to pay it off, or if you make a reference, they, yes. they want to they study it. You know, in improv, they always say you have to respect your audience's intelligence. You play up, and if they don't get the joke, they'll probably find it funny because they know you're being smart. If you play down, it doesn't serve anybody. When I'm writing a long-form story, I worry about people missing things, and then you can overwrite where you're telling them instead of letting them get it by, by writing well. How difficult is it for you to combine this idea of, like, you want to respect your audience's intelligence, but it must be frustrating if you put special things in, and they're maybe a little too over the heads of many of the people watching?
1: So, yeah, I, I love talking about this our audience really smart audience is a group really smart and David and I never worry about losing them. We learned that lesson right from the first movie because rounders is dense and has a language of its own. It's insular. And we just didn't allow ourselves to worry about that. You know, our show rewards second and third viewings and that's, and our audience is so, you know, as you know, people write these recaps, there are podcasts about the show where yeah. as you said, they catch <laughs> every Easter egg. They, every episode they're talking about, um, you know, your are uh, ESPN's uh, old compatriot, Bill Simmons at the Ringer, they do this podcast and which we love. They've done a ton of them about it. And so uh, we're confident that the audience is engaged enough. And and this goes to that question, you know, during the show, I'm on Twitter and I'm talking to the audience. And if someone has a question about it, I'll answer that question. But, But the characters on our show are incredibly smart and the characters know a lot about the world and they think deeply about it. And we're going to let them express themselves and we're never going to talk down to our audience. And if that limits our audience in some way, okay. I don't think it does, though. I think that the people who find what is funny about our show, what's dramatically engaging about our show, um, they tell their friends, like, hang with it. You know, right. watch two episodes. You'll start to get the rhythm. You'll start to get what's going
2: on. You know, of course, there are people who will watch it at a surface level and just like it for what I think you've called in the past wealth porn or a variety of reasons that it, it's compelling, even if you aren't someone who's able to maybe catch every reference. Um I loved you were doing a, an interview with someone talking about how there was a writer who for like two years wrote about the show and didn't know any of the Godfather references and finally was yeah. told. And like, see that would infuriate my thing is I know you engage with so many people on the show on social media and you're able to react to criticisms and, and you don't get hurt by it when people don't like something or don't get something. A Feeling misunderstood is one of my least favorite things in life. Like if I were writing a show and people didn't get it, or they criticized something because they were too dumb to get it, I would be mad at them. And you don't seem to be mad.
1: Well, that person, the Godfather person, was like one of the smartest people I know. That was what was so funny about it. This woman who's a great writer, and I did find that hilarious. That you could watch the show, which is just peppered with—I mean, just peppered with Godfather references. You no, know, but people get what they get from any kind of art, right? And so if they get something from the emotional clarity of these characters, that's fine. Yeah, do I want people to get all of it? Of course. Is it super satisfying when they do? It's tremendously satisfying when they do. On the other hand, I can go to a ball game with someone and they can be sitting next to me and they can be scoring the game <laughs> and they're going to get a certain level. You know, They would think, they might think, well, I know to write a backwards K down. I know what number six is. I know what position number six is. And someone else might be at the game, like, you know, I'm really glad they put a Shake Shack in here at City Field. (laughs) And um, they've looked at pickles on the hot dogs here. And, oh, is that a home? Look, it's a home run. Is that a fair (laughs) pull? But, you know, both people can have a really good time at the game, is what I've I've come to learn. And so that's fine with me. Come and have a good time at the game.
2: Yeah. Um, you have to learn a lot about something to do a movie or a show about it. And, you know, yes. you said you walked in and, and immediately rounders came to you. There's a lot of darkness and deceit. There's a lot of very interesting and, and I'm sure nice, but also troubled and, 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 uh, corrupt people in, in the world of, of big business and big finance. And, um, what appealed to you about, about writing billions, about choosing that as the topic?
1: Sure. Well, Dave and I have always been completely. Fa- First of all, we grew up out on Long Island and saw a lot of these kind of at that time mostly men, you know, business dudes who talked fast and walked into restaurants like they owned the place and could walk into the kitchen like in Goodfellas. And we always thought we right away recognized the level of, um, you know, bull that they were throwing and. Uh, but loved it, loved the way they talked, you know, loved the way they thought about the world. And then I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Dave lives in Greenwich, Connecticut, and we watched this incredible wealth, you know, hedge fund people come into the world. I'd say we've always loved people who self, self-mythologize self and the effect mm. that they have. But, but here's what I'd say. You don't have to admire people, what they do for a living, to write about them. What you want to do is understand who they are and why they do what they do and what that means. And so as long as we find them compelling and fascinating, or as long as we have a big question, right? So one of the questions that was in our mind was why qualities like verbal acuity, charisma, wealth and power started to stand in for true qualities of character in our culture. Why did these people start to become so loved, so celebrated. And so part of it was an. Ex- it for us is like a forensic look at the effect these people have on other people. And so the first season of our show, Bobby Axelrod did a lot of bad things. Right. And we told no punches with it, right? I, mean, I don't want to spoil the show, but in the first season he let somebody die who could have lived longer because it served his ends. He didn't kill that person, but I'll say the, watching people react to that as though it were a bad cool move on his part because he thought through it was really resonant to us in a world that would elect Donald Trump president. And so we are really interested in the effect that this has and the effect these people have. But if you're going to write about them, then you, you can't make them look stupid. You can't make them look obviously crass, the people in the world with them. You have to try to write them to the top of what their capability would be. So, that you're painting a true picture of the effect they have, right? If you were writing a story about a shark and you wanted to understand why sharks are so powerful, you couldn't make the sharks seem like they couldn't swim the fastest. They can. You couldn't make them seem like they could win all the fights. They can. So, you're trying to study the effectiveness of this. At the same time, we looked at prosecutors like Chris Christie and Elliot Spitzer and Rudy Giuliani and the ways in which they used public office for their own personal good. So they would give language to the fact that they were serving the public, but often they were also really serving their own career ambitions. And so we looked at this world and we were like, are there good guys? Are there bad guys? Is everybody gray? What does this world tell us about the culture we're living in now? And so that's what we wanted to put on its feet. That's what we wanted to write about and study. And that's why we can do it for so long, because it remains incredibly fascinating, and it remains something that the whole country is taken by in the real world.
2: Well, and it's it's sort of anti-heroes, which is similar to, you know, there's a good side to the people in Rounders, there's a good side to the people in Ocean's 13, but you tend to focus on hustlers, people who are in sort of very high-stakes situations and maybe have to compromise morality to get to where they want to be. Is that what's most interesting to you? Would you ever consider writing a movie or a TV show that's about, you know, the interactions between married couples in their 30s or a, a poet? who is, You know what I mean? Or is is what drives you that that looking into a very complex person who's I mean, not we like finding good or worlds bad?
1: That are, we like finding worlds that are fascinating and, and have an insularity that people haven't been able to really sort of get all the way into and then expose those worlds and think about those worlds. I mean, Solitary Man, which is about a dark character, but that is about a father and a daughter and an ex-wife. And it's it's very much an emotional story about a, a guy who is a successful business person, Michael Douglas. But he was married to Susan Sarandon. Jenna Fisher plays his daughter and Mary Louise Parker plays his current girlfriend. And that is um, a movie that is much more about sort of those, those kind of very big personal stakes, but smaller yeah. sort of world stakes. And um, it was incredibly well-reviewed and I'm super proud of that movie. But part of this is, you know, Dave and I have always been interested in um, the kind of interactions between people selling something to somebody else and how we're all selling something. And, you know, that from the movies we loved growing up, um, a certain kind of fast talking often guy. But in this show, what's so rewarding is we have Maggie Siff playing Wendy, who's a woman who's every bit as capable at slinging that stuff as they are. We have Asia Kate Dillon, who's gender non-binary person playing Taylor, a gender non-binary character, who is every bit as good at speaking that way and slinging that stuff. And it's been great to really expand into looking at all genders and all kind of people in these roles.
2: Yeah. You you and Dave have been working together for such a long time. And I just was at Elton John's sort of farewell tour show last weekend. Oh, wow. Weekend. And he thanked his longtime songwriting partner, Bernie Topin, and said that very rarely can you look back on someone's career and they've just stuck together and they like each other more than ever. They don't stick together just because the money's coming in. Has there been a moment with Dave ever where you said, we got to go work with other people or this is this is not going to work?
1: No, I mean, we are, I mean, it's crazy. You know, we were 14, and I had just turned 16, and Dave was 14 and a half when we met. And we have been like brothers ever since. And, you know, listen, we haven't talked about the Knicks, and they were like the defiant, really the most defiant. I try not to, yeah. <laughs> And that was Pearl and Clyde when I was growing up. And right. so the idea of a backcourt that looked out for each other and passed and hit the cutting person and, you know, played defense together has always been really appealing to me. And we're just good at working together as a team. We like it. That, listen, David has a successful career as a novelist and I have a popular podcast and we do our own stuff. But the central creative thing in our lives is working together to tell these stories.
2: And when you do work with other people or when people approach you about working on projects, you've obviously had your hand in a lot of successful things. People are going to be drawn to you and calling on you to help them with whatever their project is. Does it make it harder because there is such a tremendous amount of history and trust with you and David to believe in someone else the same way?
1: It could. um, But we, you know, we worked very close with Steven Soderbergh on three movies, and that was just an incredible collaboration working with somebody that we admired and respected and we are always working with directors. And that's the thing about this, the thing that we do is, you know, I'm talking to you now, we're at the set of Axe Capital. And so I'm up in our office where we write. And if I walk down the set of stairs, that's just down the hall, I'm going to walk onto a set with 200 people. And, you know, we're all working together to make this show. And those like Dave and I run this, right. We're the, the bosses of it. But the truth is, um, key grip and the gaffer um, and the cinematographer and the episodic director. I mean, we have to work incredibly closely with these people and take their lead and they have to take our lead and we have to share creative ideas. And, you know, uh, Damian Lewis pulls you to the side and you're talking about uh, text or, or Maggie Siff and you were talking about where the character would stand in the scene. And so you have to be not only willing to collaborate, but you have to love collaborating to do the thing that we do, you have to want to be part of a team. Um, that doesn't mean you can't be the one who wants the ball in the corner to take the final shot, but you have to also be willing to hit the open person to hit the shot. That's just how this works.
2: Well, yeah, but it's fascinating because you know when when I was reading the interview you did about reading criticism and listening to the pods and the recaps and interacting with people, you said oftentimes. Critical reactions even make you feel more confident in how you're doing, not worried about whether you're doing it right. How do you do that? Because there is this sort of through line of a lot of big successful creators that um, they don't want to be challenged, they don't want to be criticized, and they can't spin it into a positive. What is it about you think that allows you to be more confident huh. when you're criticized?
1: Well, you know, the very first two reviews for Rounders were incredibly negative. They came out in Time and Newsweek, and Time and Newsweek were basically in every home in America, and they were on the newsstand six days before any other reviews. There was some snafu where they reviewed it a week early, and they both killed the movie and killed us, and it was our first movie, and Mm -hmm. I really thought our career was over, and I'm not too proud to say, like I went into, I happened to go out to my parents' house that weekend with my wife and our young kid at the time, and I saw that review and I just like went into my old kid's room where I grew up and I like went into the fetal position on the floor. But then the next morning I woke up and I realized, and I really did have the thought, well, that has no power over me. I can just go right now to the computer and I can write something. I can still think the same thoughts. That's Amy over there who I love and still loves me. And it just released all, it just took all their power away, you know, because, and, and I think this is crucial we all think that there are these gatekeepers who know something. And yes, some critics are very edgy. I like reading criticism. I think there are some critics who are really smart about this stuff and can be useful to an audience. But Rounders was also rejected by every agency in Hollywood. The Illusionist, the movie Dave and I produced, was rejected by every buyer. And the Illusionist ended up doing $100 million. Rounders ended up becoming this beloved movie that people are still doing oral histories of 20 years later. And what that taught me, taught me isn't that I'm always right. I'm wrong all the time. But what it taught me was I, I can't um, defer to some supposed expert to decide if I'm right. That supposed experts are right no more often than I am. And that to imbue them with power is to, in a way, give away your own agency. And that's something I'm not willing to do. And so, yeah, will I read something and then find a way to get dispassionate about it and understand it? I will. But I, what I will not do is react out of emotion and let myself get crushed by it.
2: Yeah, it reminds me. There's the uh, never accept a no from someone who can't say a yes. So if that person isn't standing right. between you and what you want, or isn't capable of giving you a yes for any of the things that you want, why would you let them give you a no? It, do, it doesn't. That's make exactly
1: no sense. right. Why yeah. would you let? Why would you let someone low down on the chain convince you that what you want to do has no validity? Again, let me say, I've been very lucky. You know, I was born in a fortunate circumstance and I was born with certain innate skills. I I mean, I I know that I was, you know, I was born, I was, uh, you know, I'm someone who can read and remember stuff, but like, that's all true. But, but mostly what it is, is I, I just, once I discovered this idea of committing to a time to do the work and producing the work, I can't let anything interfere with that. I can't let anybody's thoughts, ideas, criticisms uh, stop me from showing up to produce work either on the page. I mean, it's why like, I still write songs. I'm not a good songwriter, but I love writing songs. I do it for myself because it's another way of just saying, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be the best songwriter in the world. What I have to do if I want to consider myself someone who writes songs, I have to write songs. And as long as <laughs> exactly. I do... I've had a successful day at that, right? (laughs) So if you just choose how you're going to define your day, like you could choose to define your day as a success. If you decide what's important to me is I do a half hour of exercise, a half hour of writing, and I have a half hour for myself. And if I do those three things, or I spend a half hour reading to my little kid, I take um, another person for a walk, you can decide that's a successful day. And if you make that decision ahead of time, and then on Monday night you say, Tuesday's going to be successful, If I meditate, take a walk, spend a half hour with my kid, and do a little writing. So if I spend those 90 minutes, that's going to be a successful day. So then you go to work, your boss yells at you, whatever else. Honestly, you've already committed that a successful day means those other things, Hmm. and you can go to bed at night feeling good.
2: That's a great approach. Absolutely. I could talk to you for hours, but I know you have to go because you're on set. But before you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does but nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) nobody expects the spanish inquisition it's the spanish inquisition number one what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with
1: oh i wish i could jump well enough to dunk a basketball
2: number two your desert island album you can only have one
1: i can only have one
2: yes it's the worst question ever
1: yeah that's a brutal question um (laughs) the answer to that question is a cheat. bob dylan's biograph
2: Okay. We'll give it to you. I'm allowing box sets. If people are clever enough. That's a box
1: set. Biograph yeah. is a box set.
2: Uh number three, if you could switch lives with someone for a day, who would it be?
1: It would have to be someone in my family so I could stay in my family. So um one of my kids.
2: Just for a day though? You could be you could be anyone for a day.
1: I have a pretty good life.
2: <laughs> I love that. Uh number four, what's the most scared you've ever been?
1: The most scared I've ever been was um uh, my daughter had a health scare when she was young, and there's nothing close oh. to as scary as that. She was fine though, so it was great. I mean, it was a bad 24 hours, and then everything was wonderful. She had an anaphylactic reaction to uh, peanuts, oh, and no. she, you know, they had the full thing. Emergency room. They weren't sure what was going to happen, and they, she pulled through. So that, yeah, that was without totally doubt fun. the scariest moment of my life.
2: Uh, number five. What's the most embarrassed you've ever been?
1: Eight years old, I tried to sing. Speaking of Elton John and Bernie Taupin, um, <laughs> I tried to sing "Crocodile Rock" at a talent show at camp.
2: <laughs> Why were you embarrassed? Acapella,
1: because I did it a- acapella with no. No, it was just it was. I went up and I tried to. You know the part of "Crocodile Rock" where, like la, you know the "La La's." Yeah, I yes, would, of course. When you're eight years old, wanting to play basketball at camp, and you go up and <laughs> sing those high "La La La's" for all the older kids at camp. You realize very quickly you've made a terrible, terrible miscalculation.
2: Well, if that's your most embarrassing, you're doing alright. I, I, uh, got thrust into a... Boxing ring in East L.A. when I first moved there as a promotional model wearing a dress made of bathing suit material. I was supposed to be Latina, but they ran out of Latina promo models. So I was about six inches taller than all the actual Latina models. The person who was supposed to sing the national anthem didn't show up. So my promotional modeling agent said, you have singing on your resume. Go on up there. So I'm in a boxing ring where everyone speaks Spanish. I start singing without a starting note or any accompaniment. Acapella. I start too high. (laughs) And then Ah. I get... And then then it's just a joke, and then I'm trying not to disrespect our national anthem, and they're kind of trying to help me sing it. (laughs) Anyway, uh, it's worse than crocodile rock.
1: You pulled the you pulled the Fergie.
2: Yeah. Oh. Well, did you see the clip, by the way, of the Warriors dancing to the remix? I did. I. Holy cow!
1: So watched it probably ten times. Uh,
2: Number six. What would you consider your biggest failure?
1: The movie Runner Runner. Why is that? Because it's terrible. We couldn't make it better. It was really dispiriting. Um, So it
2: wasn't just poorly received, it was actually bad?
1: I felt it was bad, yeah.
2: Oh, that's no good. Uh, Number seven, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success?
1: Oh, really? Mm -hmm. What habit or quality has contributed most to my success? Probably the willingness to take creative risks.
2: Yeah. Number eight, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes. And?
1: Well, when I was young, I, I would, I got in fights sometimes. When I was like up until, I haven't been in a fist fight since I, probably 14, maybe.
2: All right. Were you usually on the giving or receiving end?
1: I mostly was good at talking my way out of them by being funny. Right. But oh, well, you were an athlete, um, so
2: you had, you know, athleticism on your side.
1: Yes. No, but I was not like an athlete in the way. I was, I was, you know, good at, I had good hand eye.
2: You were wily. You weren't, you weren't uh,
1: strong. Yes. Uh,
2: Number nine, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve?
1: Physical conditioning.
2: That seems easy enough.
1: It is. I'm working on it. Always working on it.
2: Is that on your, whether your day was a success list?
1: Yeah, for sure. I do stuff now. I mean, I'm, yeah, I, uh, I'm better at it, but yes, that, Always
2: number 10. What three words would you most hope people would use to describe you?
1: A good father.
2: Hmm. That's good. And finally, the bonus, who would you recommend I have on this podcast?
1: Ooh, who should you have on the podcast?
2: Yeah. Who's a good? Person had, I talked to. Uh,
1: well, my partner, David Levine would be great, but you've just done the whole billions uh, thing. I would say this, uh, have you had Bomani on? I have. O'Mani's a really great podcast.
2: Really guest. interesting. Yeah, for sure.
1: And uh, maybe General David Petraeus would be good for you to talk to. About Did you just his have him on? Moments. No, I had Stanley McChrystal on. Oh, that's incredible. right. But I'm going slightly to the right of that, with or left of it, to Petraeus.
2: Yeah. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for giving me this time. I really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Sure thing, Sarah. Me too. Be well.
2: This week, the Spanish Inquisition with Brian Coppelman was brought to you by TSO. Tiso, the official watch of the NBA. Shop at us.tissoshop.com. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me, and I fix it. And we're in the heat of the NHL playoffs, so it seemed like a good time to rant about leaners and if you haven't been to a lot of hockey games this might be a little confusing but if you've ever been to a hockey game one of the best things about it is that the view is great even from 300 level upper level seats you've got this great view of the ice sometimes even better than close up because if you get too close up sometimes the glass can distort the view from certain angles so it's great to go to a hockey game sit up top watch the plays unfold watch the strategy unless there's a leaner in front of you now You know, you reach forward to grab your beer or pick up a nacho or to talk to a friend. That's fine. But if you spend the entire game on the front of your seat, leaning forward, you are blocking probably half of the ice. And if you're in a bad position in a particular part of the arena, you are blocking the entire net and anything that happens near the net. So these people, these leaners, have gotten so bad that a number of different teams actually have signage that says, please be considerate, don't lean forward. They've got videos before the game using the mascot showing how annoying it is. And some people insist that they've paid the money to sit in any position that they want, forgetting, of course, that everybody else around them also paid money to be able to see the game. So please, for the love of God, just One day, I swear to God, if I snap, it's going to be because of this, because people in front of me are leaning so far forward that I can't even see the ice anymore. In fact, I have a collection of photos of people when I'm at Blackhawks games who are leaning directly in front of me, and I can just show that they are taking up the entire ice. So there's a back on your seat for a reason. Stand up occasionally when you're excited. Lean forward when you need to grab something or to get a little stretch, but use the back of the seat. Be considerate, people, okay? Thank you. I feel good about what we accomplished today. No leaning, sitting up against the back of your seat, letting everybody enjoy it. Okay, great. Thank you. This listener dilemma brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, so this week's listener dilemma is from a gentleman who goes by the name Noha93 on the old iTunes podcast reviews. And if you want your listener dilemma attended to, you just have to go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain and in the review post your dilemma, or you can always tweet me and send it to me at Sarah Spain on Twitter. So, NoHa93, his dilemma is he's a 54-year-old man and he's getting lonely. He wants to meet a lady, he has some health issues, and he wants to know how he can meet someone. So, without knowing your health issues and exactly how mobile you are, I have a couple suggestions. One, I actually just thought of as I was reading a story in the New York Times the other day, entitled The Writer Anne Lamott Gets to the Happily Ever After Part. And she's um, an older woman who has been single for life, a uh, really accomplished writer, and at 65, just got married for the first time. And she met her husband on a website called Our Time which I had not heard of. Apparently, it's a matchmaking site for people over 50. So there you go. Start there, right? Because as much as it may feel weird to you in your 50s because that's not how you grew up, that's how everybody's meeting people these days. So you kind of just got to suck it up and give it a shot. And it's a numbers game. Just message as many people as you think there might be a chance with And don't spend too much time talking to them beforehand. Immediately go out and grab a coffee or a drink because you never know what the chemistry is going to be. You don't want to waste your time. The other thing that's great is, especially at 54, you may be nearing retirement or you may have a little bit more free time than when you were younger. Figure out something you've always wanted to learn and go take classes in that somewhere in your community. That's a great way to meet people, probably people who are interested in same things as you and have similar habits and hobbies and everything. Go to farmer's markets, live music, craft fairs, sporting events, grocery stores, restaurants, bars. Just put yourself out into the world and make yourself look and act like someone who wants to be approached, who wants to make friends. And you're going to have some hit and misses. But I think the, the reason that so many people get lonely, especially now, is because they get stuck with all the things that make our lives easier you know, you can get food delivered and watch TV and watch Netflix forever and text on your phone and never make human contact. You just got to get out there in the world and give it a shot. So good luck to you. Noha 93. And I would love for you to try some of those things and then write me again. Tell us if you, if you meet a lady. Um, and again, if you guys want your dilemmas fixed, subscribe, rate and review in the iTunes or the podcast app. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me.
0: That's what she said.